Hello and welcome. First, I want to talk just a minute on this terrible pandemic that we're facing here in the United States and, of course, across the world. And ask the question, what the fuck are we going to do with the coronavirus or COVID-19? It has made people sick. It has killed people. It has just tore across the world, across this country. Um, incomes are lost. Jobs are lost. Lives are lost. It's, it's just a, a terrible thing. Um, I know five different families just right here in my immediate family circle or friend circle that have lost income. So I've set up a GoFundMe to try to raise just a little bit of money to help fill that gap of uh, no income for, for these families until maybe they can get working again or get other get another form of, of help or support. Um, you can look at the, the show notes. There'll be a link there for uh, you're able to support the show through, well, let me back up. The GoFundMe, we've started it for five families that we've got in the area to help give them some money to uh, to get through until they get back on their feet. Um, also, any donation or support of this show will go also to help support that cause. So if you can donate a dollar or help support the show with a dollar, uh, anything will help. Um, you can look in the show notes. We've got a... Uh, link there to help support the show through Anchor. We've got PayPal. Or you can go to the GoFundMe page. Anybody that helps support the show, uh, I'd love to be able to give them a, a personalized shout-out, uh, recognizing their help, you know, and, and, and just to say thank you. Um, so I hope that this podcast finds everybody well and uh, safe and sitting at home, I guess, because um, everybody is doing some form of, well, I am, some form of quarantine, and if I, I do have to venture out just a bit, uh, doing the uh, social distancing and, and everything else, but um, if you can help us support the show or support the GoFundMe page with any form of donation, uh, it would be much appreciated because there are... Uh, many families that are uh, suffering and, and struggling right now and I know that <clears throat> excuse me that it's uh, bad for everybody so you know if you can't that is 100% understandable uh, if you can we would appreciate it a dollar two dollars five dollars that that's fine anything what helps so you can do that through GoFundMe um, I will have the the name of the campaign in the show notes I will have um, a link to support the show uh, through Anchor or through PayPal in the show notes. And, um, I mean, just have no idea how much it would help. So, with that being said, um, I think we should talk about serial killers. This is The Weekly Podcast. I was born with the devil in me," said H. H. Holmes, who in, uh, in 1893 had took advantage of the World's Fair and the extra room he rented out in his Chicago mansion to kill at least 27 people without attracting much attention at all. 
I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the inspire the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world as he has been with me since, Holmes said. The idea of I can't help it is one of the hallmarks of many serial killers, along with an unwillingness to accept responsibility for their actions and a refusal to acknowledge that they themselves used free will to do their dreadful deeds. Yes, I did it, but I'm a sick man and can't be judged by the standards of other men, said Juan Corona, who killed 25 migrant workers in California in the late 1960s and early 1970s. He buried them in the very fruit orchards where they'd hoped to build a better life for their families. Dennis Rader, who called himself the BTK killer, which is bind them, torture them, kill them, also blame some unknown facet to his personality, something he called Factor X, for his casual ability to kill one family and then go home to his own where he was a devoted family man. When this monster entered my brain, I will never know, but it is here to stay. How does one cure himself? I can't stop it. The monster goes on and hurts me as well as society. Maybe you can stop him. I can't, said Raider who said he realized he was different than the other kids before he entered high school. I actually think I may be possessed with demons. But again, he blamed others for not stopping him from making his first murderous move. You know, at some point in time, someone should have picked something up for me and identified it, he later said. Raider was not the only serial killer to place the blame far away from himself. William Bonin actually took offense when the judge called him sadistic and guilty of monstrous criminal conduct. I don't think he had any right to say that to me, Bonin later whined. I couldn't help myself. It's not my fault I killed these boys. And going back to Raider, Dennis Raider was able to somehow corral his desires for years and years and years and years. Maybe it was the photos or the garments he had taken and, and it would revisit and take photos of himself, which he was caught doing, uh, or they had found pictures and things like that. But the thing, the funny thing about Raider is that he was uh, scot-free and had managed to somehow get away with it and had gotten away with it until he decided he wanted to play with law enforcement again by sending notes and letters and I don't know some people say that certain ki killers are are just smart and cunning and I'm not sure if it's not a stroke of luck or maybe some other form of something that's keeping uh, keeping them uh, safe from from law enforcement because Raider only got caught when he had years later sent a note and asked if they could trace a floppy disk from the computer it was sent from or, or whatever he was writing or typing on the on the computer and they said no and I guess he thought they were enjoying the game as much as him but that was not the case because they could and they did and they caught Dennis Raider but though, 
you know, it, it, all, it leaves us asking why, I think. You know, for those of us who are not serial killers, the questions of why and how almost always come to mind. So ill-equipped we are we to understand the concept of murder on such a vast scale. Um, some nights I'd lie awake asking myself, who the hell is BTK? Said FBI profiler John Douglas, who worked with the Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico before writing several best-selling books, including Mindhunter, Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit, and Obsession, the FBI's legendary profiler probes the psyches of killers, rapists, and stalkers and their victims and tells how to fight back. The questions were never far from his mind, you know, like, what makes a guy like this do what he does? What makes him tick? And is it the kind of thing that keeps... It's, to hear him say or to read some of the things he'd written, he's basically saying it's the kind of thing that keeps profilers and police up at night worrying, wondering, and waiting for answers that are not always so easily forthcoming. You know, another leader into the study of, of madmen, the late FBI profiler Robert Ressler, who, who coined the term serial killer as well as criminal profiling, and also spent sleepless nights trying to piece together a portrait uh, of these madmen and, and what made them tick. Of course, those two, John Douglas and Robert Ressler, are the characters in, in the Mindhunter series on Netflix, if you haven't seen it. Um... Something that uh, psychiatrist James Brussel did almost unfailingly well in 1940 when a pop bomb killer enraged uh, at Con Edison was terrorized in New York City. Brussel told police what the killer would be wearing when they arrested him, and although he was caught at home late at night wearing his pajamas, when police asked him to dress, he emerged from his room wearing a double-breasted suit exactly as Brussel had predicted. What is this force that takes a hold of a person and, and pushes them over the edge? This is something that Wrestler always wondered. He interviewed tons of killers over the course of his amazing career. In an effort to infiltrate the minds of serial killers, Douglas and Wrestler embarked on a mission to interview some of the most deranged serial killers in the country, starting their journey in California, which has uh, always had more than its share of weird and spectacular crimes that Douglas had, been, had said. In their search for a pattern, they determined that there are essential two types of, of serial killers, organized and disorganized. So let's look at organized. Organized killers. Organized killers were revealed through their crime scenes, which were neat controlled and meticulous, with effort taken both in the crime and with their victims. Organized killers also take care to leave behind few clues once they're done. Dean Coral, known as the Candyman, was an organized serial killer. He tortured his victims overnight, carefully collecting blood and bodily fluids on a sheet of plastic before rolling them up and burying them in, them in their possessions most beneath the floor of a boat shed he'd rented, going there late at night under the cover of darkness. Then, disorganized killers. On the flip side of the coin, disorganized killers grab their victims indiscriminately or act on the spur of the moment, allowing victims to collect 
evidence beneath their fingernails when they fight back, and oftentimes leaving behind numerous clues, including weapons. The disorganized killer has uh, no idea of or interest in the personalities of his victims, Ressler wrote in his book, Whoever Fights Monsters. One of several detailing his work as a criminal profiler, which the book, Whoever Fights Monsters. He does not want to know who they are and many times takes steps to obliterate their personalities by quickly knocking them unconscious or covering their faces or otherwise disfiguring them. Kerry Stainer, also known as Yosemite Killer, became a disorganized killer during his last murder, which occurred on the fly when he was unable to resist a pretty park educator. Lucky for other young women in this picturesque park, he left behind a wide range of clues, including four unmatched tire tracks from his aging 1979 International Scout. The crime scene is presumed to reflect the murderer's behavior and personality in much the same way as furnishings reveal the homeowner's character. Douglas and Ressler later wrote, expanding on their findings as they continued their interview sessions. Now, serial killers think they're unique, but they're not. Dr. Helen Morrison, a longtime fixture in the study of serial killers who keeps clown killer John Wayne Gacy's brain in her basement, which I think that qualifies her. After Gacy's execution, she sent the brain away for analysis that proved it to be completely normal, said that at their core, most serial killers are essentially the same. While psychologists still haven't determined the motives behind what drives serial killers to murder, there are certain characteristics they have in common, said Morrison, who has studied or interviewed scores of serial killers and wrote about her experiences in My Life Among the Serial Killers. Most often men, serial killers tend to be talkative hypochondriacs who develop a remorseless addiction to the brutality of murder. Two, they are able to see their victims as objects, playthings, just there for their amusement. Empathy, not on your life. They have no appreciation for the absolute agony and terror and fear that the victim is demonstrating. They just see the object in front of them. A serial murderer has no feelings. Serial killers have no motives. They kill only to kill an object. In doing so, they satisfy their urges and quiet the uh, raging turmoil basically going on inside of them. So you might ask yourself, you might say to yourself, how could anybody do this to another human being? Then you realize they don't see them as humans. To them, it's like pulling the wings off of a fly or the legs off of a daddy long legs. You just want to see what happens. It's the most base experiment. Now, how much does someone's environment play when they're going through childhood or early development. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it plays a, a factor because DNA itself doesn't, doesn't do it. There's many, many, many children of serial killers that are amazing and wonderful, wonderful human beings, compassionate, caring, empathy, sympathy, just wonderful human beings. So, is it, obviously we're all human, we're all flawed, we all have 
different things that haunt us, but is it what what is it that causes that to snap or to break or to push over the edge or to finally say you've got an urge, a fantasy? What is what is it that pushes that over the edge to keep you from just living that inside your head versus acting out on it? We'll be right back. Nature versus nurture. For many serial killers, the desire to kill is as uh, innate as their hair or, or eye color and out of control, but most experts say that childhood trauma is an experience shared by them all. 1990, Colin Wilson, Donald Seaman, conducted a study of serial killers behind bars and found that childhood problems were the most influential factors that led serial killers down their particular path of death and destruction. Former FBI profiler Robert Ressler, who coined the term serial killer and criminal profiling, goes so far as to say that 100% of all serial killers experienced childhoods that were not filled with happy memories of camping trips or fishing on the lake. According to Ressler, of all the serial killers he interviewed or studied, each had suffered some form of abuse as a child, either sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, neglect, or rejection by parents or humiliation, including instances that occurred at school. For those who are already hovering psychologically on, on edge due to unfortunate genetics, such, such events become focal points that drive a, a killer to act on seemingly insane instincts. Because there is often no solid family unit, parents are missing or, or more focused on drugs and alcohol, sexual abuse goes unnoticed, physical abuse is commonplace, and the child's development becomes uh, stunted. And they can either develop deep-seated rage or create for themselves a fantasy world where everything is perfect and they are essentially the kings of their self-made castle. That was the world of Jeffrey Dahmer who recognized his need for control much later after hours spent in analysis where he learned the impact of a sexual assault as a child as well as his parents' messy, rage-filled divorce. After I left home, that's when I started wanting to create my own little world where I was the one who had complete control, Dahmer said. I just took it way too far. Dahmer's experiences suggest that Psychopathic behavior likely develops in childhood when due to the neglect and abuse, children revert to a place of fantasy, a world where the, the victimization of the child shifts towards others. The child becomes psychopathic because the normal development of the concepts of right and wrong and empathy towards others is retorted because the child's emotional and social development occurs within his self-centered fantasy. A person can do no wrong in his own world, and the pain of others is of no consequence when the purpose of the fantasy world is to satisfy the needs of one person. As the lines between fantasy and reality become blurred, fantasies that are on their own or harmless become real, and monsters like Dean Coral, the Candyman, 
find themselves strapping young boys down to a wooden plank, raping them, torturing them, and listening to them scream, treating the act like little more than a art project that just happens to end in murder. So now, let's go inside the mind and look at psycho psychopathy and, and other mental illnesses. Now, why not? Not all psychopaths are, are serial killers. Many compulsive killers do feel some sense of remorse, such as uh, the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway. He, he did cry in court after one victim's father offered Ridgway his forgiveness. Those who are, Morrison said, are unable to feel a speck of empathy, empathy for their victims. Their focus is entirely on themselves and the power they are able to assert over others, especially so in the case of psychopathy or so psychopath. Psychopaths are charming. Think Ted Bundy, who had no trouble luring young women into his car by gaining sympathy for like a fake injury, an arm, and have, have the skills to just easily manipulate them. Or in some cases, they're accomplices. Dean Coral was called Svengali, a name taken from a fictional character in George Jamar's 1895 novel Trilby, Trilby. Trilby. Sorry if I messed that up. Forgive me. Please. Well, in this novel, which is written in 1895, I apologize. I have not read it. Forgive me, because I've probably butchered every bit of that. Well, anyway, in this novel, this trilby seduces, dominates, and exploits the main character, a young girl, for being able to enlist the help of several neighborhood boys who procure his uh, youthful male victims without remorse, even when the teens were their friends, which we know that Dean Coral ended up being shot and killed by uh, one of his uh, accomplices that started out as one of his victims. Some of, uh, I mean, these are some specific traits of serial killers. Now, these have been determined through the years of profiling. They include smooth talking but insincere. Ted Bundy was a charmer the kind of guy that made it easy for people to be swept into his web. I liked him immediately, but people like Ted can fool you completely, said Ann Rule, author of the best-selling Stranger Beside Me. Now, this is about her experiences with Bundy, a man she considered a friend. I'd been a cop, had all that psychology, but his mask was perfect. I say that long acquaintance can help you know someone, but you can never be really sure. Scary. Grandiose. Egocentric. Jack the Ripper thought the world of himself and felt he would outsmart police. So much so that he sent letters taunting the London officers. Dear boss, he wrote, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they 
look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I ain't shanked and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha! Ha! The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. If he gets a chance. They never caught Jack the Ripper. Well, some people think that certain people are Jack the Ripper. Anyway, lack of remorse or guilt. Joel Rifkin was filled with self-pity after he was convicted of killing and dismembering at least nine women. He called his conviction a tragedy, but later in prison he got into an argument with mass murderer Colin Ferguson over whose killing spree was more important. And when Ferguson taunted him for only killing women, Rifkin said, yeah, but I had more victims. Lack of empathy. Andrea Chocolato, who feasted on bits of genitalia both male and female after his kills, thought nothing of taking a life, no matter how torturous it was for his victims. The whole thing, he cries, the blood, the agony, gave me relaxation and a certain pleasure, he said. His words, not mine. Deceitful and manipulative. John Wayne Gacy refused to take responsibility for the 28 boys buried beneath his house, even though he also once said that clowns can get away with murder. I think after 14 years under truth serum, had I committed the crime, I would have known it, said the man the neighbors all claimed to like. There's got to be something that would, would click in my mind. I've had photos of 21 of the victims, and I've looked at them all over the years, and I never recognize any one of them. Shallow Emotions German serial killer Rudolf Phil, convicted of killing 10 people and later took his own life in prison, compared his hobby of murder to playing cards, and later told police, What I did is not such a great harm. With all these surplus women nowadays, anyway, I had a good time. His words, not mine. Impulsive. Tommy Lynn Sales, who claimed responsibility for dozens of murders throughout the Midwest and South, saw a woman at a convenience store and followed her home, an impulse he was unable to control. He waited until the house went dark. Then, I went into this house. I go to the first bedroom I see. I don't know whose room it is, and, 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 I start stabbing. The victim was the woman's young son. That's his words. Poor behavior controls. I wished I could stop, but I could not. I had no other thrill or happiness, said UK killer Dennis Nelson, who killed at least 12 young men via strangulation then bathed and dressed their bodies before disposing of them, often by burning them. Need for excitement. 
for Albert Fish, a killer with a side of sadism that included sending a letter to the mother of one of his victims, describing in detail how he cut, cooked, and ate her daughter. Even the idea of his own death was one he found particularly thrilling. Going to the electric chair will be the supreme thrill of my life, he said. Lack of responsibility. I see myself more as a victim rather than a perpetrator, said Gacy. In a rare moment of admitting the murders, I was cheated out of my childhood. I should never have been convicted of anything more serious than running a cemetery without a license. They were just a bunch of worthless little queers and punks. His words, not mine. <clears throat> Early behavior problems. When I was a boy, I never had a friend in the world, said German serial killer Heinrich Pomerinke, Pomerinke, who began raping and murdering girls as a teen. Adult antisocial behavior. Gary Ridgway pleaded guilty to killing 48 women, mostly prostitutes who were easy prey and were rarely reported missing, at least not immediately. I don't believe in man, God, nor devil. I hate the whole damned human race, including myself. I preyed upon the weak, the harmless, and the unsuspecting. This lesson I was taught by others. Might makes right. felt like it. Many psychopaths will say after a crime, I did it because I felt like it. They don't have certain elements of pride. That's how BTK killer Dennis Rader felt because he had no sense of wrong regarding his actions. He was able to carry on with his normal life with his wife and children with ease. Now someone else's demeanor might have changed and might have become jittery or anxious. They would have been caught. Many serial killers are so cold they can pop into a dinner right after a murder, never showing a sign of what they've done. Serial murders often seem normal, according to the FBI. They have families and or a steady job. They're completely ordinary. And that's what gets a lot of victims in trouble. That normalcy is often what allows perpetrators to get away with their crimes for so long. Unlike mass murders, such as terrorists who generally drop off the radar before perpetrating their event, serial killers blend in. They might seem a bit strange. Neighbors noticed that Ed Gein wasn't too big on personal hygiene, and neighbors did think it was odd that William Bonin hung out with such young boys, but obviously not so much that no one asked any damn questions. And I think it's one issue with, with uh, we, we do not... As a society, we see some shit going on. And, I mean, obviously, if it was something obviously terrible, we would intervene. But I think, as human beings, we're so quick to be like, oh, no, no, that's none of our business, or no, that's not. We're overreacting. No, that's... So, anyway. And that's why you hear all the time people say, I had no idea, or he was such a nice guy after a friend or neighbor is arrested. And it's also why people are so very stunned 
when they see stories of serial killers dominating the news. I think it's the fact that we didn't see it coming or takes us by surprise that makes makes the news... I mean, because serial killers, for years and years and years, I mean, true crime, serial killers, there's a... I don't want to use the word fascination. There is definitely a... Um, a out of the word, I guess a fascination with it to a certain degree because we love our true crime. We love our serial killer shows, television programs, CSI, uh, Criminal Minds, uh, Mindhunter, all that. Now, for a person with a conscience, Raider's crimes, Dennis Raider, BTK, they seemed hideous, terrible. But from his point of view, Shit, that's, that's his greatest accomplishment. And uh, he's anxious to share all of the wonderful things he's done. So, you take a look at psychopathy. Psychopathy is now diagnosed as antisocial personality disorder. A prettier spin on an absolutely horrifying diagnosis. According to studies... Almost 50% of men in prison and 21% of women in prison have been diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Of serial killers, Ted Bundy, <clears throat> who enjoyed sex with his dead victims, John Wayne Gacy and Charles Manson, who encouraged others to do his dirty work, while, which included the murder of pregnant Sharon Tate, were all diagnosed with this particular affliction which allowed them to carry out their crimes with total disregard toward others or toward the law. They showed no remorse. Schizophrenia. Many known serial killers were later diagnosed with some other form of mental illness, including schizophrenia, believed to be behind the crimes of David Berkowitz. He said his neighbor's dog told him to kill his six victims in the 70s. Ed Gein, whose grizzlies, who, who grizzly saved skin, bones, and various female sex parts was a desperate effort to resurrect his dead mother and Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento who killed six people in California in order to drink their blood. Schizophrenia includes a wide range of symptoms ranging from hallucination and delusions to living in a catatonic state. By no means I don't, they're not saying or I'm not saying that all of schizophrenia leads to serial kill, kill, killers or killing, but there are some serial killers that have this mental illness. Borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder, which is characterized by intense mood swings, problems with interpersonal relationships, and impulse behavior, is also common in serial killers. I might be in trouble there. Sounds like half of America. Some diagnosed cases of borderline personality disorder include Eileen Warnos, a woman whose horrific childhood and numerous sexual assaults led her to murder one of her rapists, after which she spiraled out of control and killed six other men who picked her up along the highway in Florida. Nurse Kristen H. Gilbert, who killed four patients at a Virginia hospital with overdoses of epinephrine and Dahmer, whose murder count rose to 17 before he was caught. With a stigma still quite present regarding mental illness, it's likely we will continue to diagnose serial killers and mass murderers after the fact.
way too late to protect their victims and possibly to help protect them from themselves. So what are some top signs of a serial killer? So you're thinking, man, how am I going to figure out if my neighbor, he's a little weird, he's got some shitty hygiene, uh, is this guy a serial killer? Well, I'm going to give you a few, okay? Well, there's still no simple thread of similarities, which is why police and the FBI have more trouble in real life solving crimes than they do on shows like Criminal Minds. There are some things to look for, experts say. This is experts. Antisocial behavior. Psychopaths tend to be loners. So if a child that was once outgoing becomes shy and antisocial, this could be an issue. Jeffrey Dahmer was a social, lively child until his parents moved to Ohio for his father's new job. There he regressed, allegedly after being sexually molested, and began focusing his attentions on going down the road of killing rather than uh, friendships. Arson. Fire is power, and power and control are part of the appeal for the serial killers who enjoy having their victims at their mercy. David Berkowitz was a pyromaniac as a child. His classmates called him Pyro as a nickname. So well known was he for his fire obsession and he reportedly started more than 1,000 fires in, the New, in New York before he became the son of Sam Killer. And here we've got one of the, the triads, the torturing of animals. Serial killers often start young and they test boundaries with animals including family or neighborhood pets. 70% of violent offenders have episode of animal abuse in their childhood history compared to just 6% of nonviolent offenders. Albert DeSalvo, better known as the Boston Strangler, would capture cats and dogs as a child and trap them in boxes, shooting arrows at the defenseless animals for sport. Another sign is a troubled family history. Many serial killers come from families with criminal or psychiatric histories or alcoholism. Edmund Kemper, the co-ed killer, killed his grandparents to see what it would be like, and later, after he murdered a string of college students, he killed his alcoholic mother, grinding her vocal cords in the garbage disposal in an attempt to erase the sound of her voice, which he stated that the garbage disposal spit them back up. Childhood abuse, William Bonin, who killed at least 21 boys and young men in, a violent, in violent rapes and murders, was abandoned as a child. He was sent to live in a group home where he himself was sexually assaulted. The connections suggest either a rage that cannot be erased, like Eileen Warnosa, a rare female serial killer who was physically and sexually abused throughout her childhood, resulting in a distrust of others and a pent-up rage that exploded when her later on during a rape of uh, in her adult years so after she was raped that just set off something in her she killed him and then six other men you know it's like a, a disassociation of sorts refusing to connect on a human level with others for fear of being rejected yet again substance abuse many killers serial killers Use drugs or alcohol. Jeffrey Dahmer was discharged from the army due to drink, a drinking problem he developed in high school. 
and he used uh, alcohol to lure his victims to his apartment where he killed them in a fruitless effort to create a zombie-like sex slave who would never leave him. Voyeurism. When Ted Bundy was a teen, he spent his nights as a peeping Tom hoping to get a glimpse of one of the neighborhood girls getting undressed in their bedrooms. Serial killers are usually smart. While their IQ is not usually the reason why serial killers elude police for so long, many have a very high IQ. Edmund Kemper was just this close to being considered a genius. His IQ was set at 136, just four points beneath the 140 mark that earns a genius status, but I have read other stuff, uh, publications that put his IQ above that. Uh, and of course, he used his intelligence to create complex cons that got him released from prison early after killing his grandparents and allowing eight more women to die. And sometimes they often can't keep a job. Now, I'm not sure that this one is as strong of a trait than some of the others because I've often read, too, that they can possibly keep relationships and keep a job. So we'll, we'll say that sometimes this will fall and come into play. This can't keep a job. Serial killers often have trouble staying employed, either because their off-hour activities takes up a lot of their time. Jeffrey Dahmer hid bodies in his shower, the shower he used every morning before work because he was killing at such a fast rate, or because their obsessions have them hunting for victims when they should be on the clock at work. So, what are some of the trademarks of a serial killer? So we've all watched Criminal Minds, and we know some of the terminology. We all could probably be mind hunters at this point, or so we think. I think. Nah. It's just intriguing. I think John Douglas and Russell are just, I just, that shit just blows my mind. Just amazing individuals, very smart. While what we know helps us get a better understanding of potential serial killers and perhaps take a closer look at our weird little neighbors, it is still tricky for police and FBI agents to track serial killers down without knowing a few tales. The signature. While serial killers like to stake a claim over their killings, uh, serial killers typically have some sort of signature, according to Scott Bond. They're usually still quite neat, and a signature does not necessarily mean evidence. Jack the Ripper, of course, his signature was the ripping of the bodies. While there are multiple theories, Jack the Ripper has yet to be identified despite the similarities in his murders. Two, the happy face killer, Keith Hunter Jesperson, Jesperson, which, if you ever watch Dark Minds, was M. William Phelps' secret uh, serial killer on that show they called Raven, whose childhood was marked by Alcoholic parents, teasing at school, and a propensity to abuse small animals drew happy faces on the numerous letters he sent both to media and authorities, teasing them a bit with a carrot on a string. 
If the forensics evidence itself, depending upon the bones or flesh or whatever is left, if it allows for that sort of identification, that would be one way of using forensic evidence to link these murders. The cooling off period. So we've got the signature, the cooling off period. Organized killers are so neat, tidy, and meticulous that they may never leave clues, even if they have a signature. And if there's a long cooling off period between crimes, tracking the killer becomes even more of a challenge. After a murder, which could be compared to a sexual experience or getting high on drugs, the uncontrollable urges that led the killer to act, they dissipate, at least temporarily. But according to Ressler, serial killers are rarely satisfied with their kills, and each one increases desire in the same way a porn addiction can start with the pages of Playboy, then turn into BDSM videos or other fetishes when Playboy pictorials are no longer satisfying. I was literally singing to myself on the way home after the killing. The tension, the desire to kill a woman had built up in such an explosive way that when I finally pulled the trigger, all the pressures, all the tension, all the hatred had just vanished, dissipated, but only for a short time. Said David Berkowitz, better known as the Son of Sam. Afterwards, the memory of the murder, or mem the mementos from the murder, such as the, the skulls Jeffrey Dahmer retained, the scalps collected by David Gore, or the box of vulvas Ed Gein kept in his kitchen, no longer became enough, and the killers must kill again, creating a serial cycle. That window between Crimes usually become smaller, however, which allows authorities to notice similarities in murder scenes or methodology, making tracking easier because that desire starts to come back quicker because it's just what they've done becomes less, less self-gratifying to them. In the case of William Bonin, there were months between his first few murders but toward the end, he sometimes killed two young men a day to satisfy his increasingly uncontrollable urges. Sometimes I'd get, the, get tense and think I was going to go crazy if I couldn't get some release. Like my head would explode. So I'd go out hunting. Killing helped me. It was like needing to go gambling or get drunk. I had to do it, Bonin said. I look at the Long Island serial killer, which to me is one of the, it's the most most intriguing. It's just it's crazy to me because you've got Shannon Gilbert that is not considered in the group of four that was found, but you've got a Craigslist prostitute, and I mean no disrespect, takes off running from a client and just so happens stumbles and where she's running through and, and stumbles and fall into a graveyard of Craigslist prostitutes. It's just crazy. But if you look at the four that were murdered and wrapped in the burlap, even including Shannon, you, you've you got one in July of, of uh, 2007, then the next one's July of 2009, then you've got May 1st, which that's Shannon, then you've got 
you know, they go, the first two, say, are two years apart. Then the last two, and in, including Shannon, the last three are from May to September of 2010. And then they're discovered in December of 2010. So it looks like that his cooling off period had closed up. And this killer, the Long Island serial killer, even decided, which the first two went missing before Shannon Gilbert. And then you've got, which it just goes to show that they probably, they was not looking for Shannon Gilbert right after she went missing because the man was able to kill two more women all the way up to September and dump them in that area. So, hunting in pairs. Now, some serial killers, between 10 and 25%, find working as a team more efficient, and they use their charm as the hook to lure in accomplices. Ed Gein may never have killed anyone had his accomplice, a mentally challenged man who helped Gein dig up the graves of women who resembled his mother, not being sent to a nursing home, leaving Gein unable to dig up the dead on his own. Texas killer Dean Coral, the candy man, using beer, drugs, money, and candy to bribe neighborhood boys to bring him their friends for what they were promised, promised was a party, but instead would turn to torture and murder. He would have killed many more if one of his accomplices had not finally shot him to prevent another night of death. William Bonin also liked to work with friends, and he enticed boys who were reportedly on the low end of the IQ scale to help him sadistically rape and torture his victims. Now, there's a couple other red flags that, that show up, and according to the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, which was founded by Robert Ressler, 60% of murderers whose, crime, whose crimes involved sex were childhood bedwetters and sometimes carried the habit into adulthood. One such serial killer, Alton Coleman, regularly wet his pants, earning the humiliating nickname Pissy. Well, that would suck. Fuck, <laughs> Pissy. Shit. That's terrible. <laughs> I don't understand the bedwetting thing. I mean, I'd have to get into the more, more of the psychology of it, what causes it, why it's relevant. Which I may be saying this, and y'all may be thinking I'm, I'm an idiot because I don't know. But I just, I mean, I get what he's saying. But, I mean, not that I pissed the bed or anything. I'm just, uh, anyway. Uh, sexual arousal over violent fantasies during puberty can also play a role in a uh, serial, serial killer's future. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer hit puberty about the same time he was dissecting roadkill. So in some way, his wires became crossed and twisted and sex and death aroused him. Brain damage? Maybe. Maybe not. Helen Morrison, her, her test found that John Wayne Gacy's brain was normal and Jeffrey Dahmer's father never had the opportunity to have his son's brain studied Although both he and Jeffrey had wanted the study, there is some evidence that some serial killers have brain damage that impact their ability to ex exact rational control. Normal parents, normal brains, I think not. 
said Dr. Dr. Jonathan Pincus, a neurologist and author of the book Base Instincts, What Makes Killers Kill. Abusive experiences, mental illnesses, and neurological defects interplayed to produce the tragedies reported in the newspaper. The most vicious criminals have also been, overwhelmingly, people who have been grotesquely abused as children and have paranoid patterns of thinking. Adding that childhood traumas can impact the developmental anatomy and functioning of the brain. So what do we know? We know that your neighbor's a serial killer. We know that, I'm kidding. So what do we know? We know serial killers can be either uber smart or brain damaged. Complete, completely people that are savvy as hell or totally awkward. They can be high functioning and seemingly normal or fuck they can't even hold down a job. But essentially, no matter what their backstory, their modus operandi or their style, they're evil. And do we need to know anything more than that? This is the weekly podcast.